welcome to the Education Innovators Podcast. I'm Eric Byron, and it's an honor to host this show where we get to hear from talented educators who are willing to share their stories of the incredible things they are doing in learning environments all over the world. But the idea of debate-centered instruction is that you learn through debating or you learn through the preparation of the debate before the debate, right? You have to learn right. your arguments and your, share your ideas, develop your ideas. You learn while you're debating, of course, through the process in and of itself. That's the voice of Stefan Bouchard, a debate coach and advocate for debate-centered instruction. This episode is part one of my fun conversation with Stefan, a fellow Boston Red Sox fan it was as if we were old friends as we debated the potential benefits of debate-centered instruction. We're always looking for new and innovative forms of active learning. Listen as Stefan explains how debate can be a great tool to engage students and develop durable skills, skills we know are critical to their success in life. Today I have with me Stefan Bouchard. And Stefan recently published a book titled, and bear with me, this is a really long title here, Chat GPT, Navigating the Impact of Generative AI Technologies on Educational Theory and Practice. Educators discuss Chat GPT and other artificial intelligence tools. And to go with such a long title, apparently the book is like over 650 pages something like that. And it features 32 authors with expertise in education, technology, and the law. Stefan has run many webinars and classes on teaching with generative AI. He is also an experienced, very experienced debate coach and nonprofit leader with a demonstrated history of working in the education management industry. But today, today we're not going to talk so much about the AI specific thing or the book. We're going to talk about a paper that Stefan did that I read, and it's called Beyond Algorithmic Solutions, the Significance of Academic Debate for Learning Assessment and Skill Cultivation in the AI World. So I found this paper just fascinating. I reached out to Stefan and said, all right, we got to have a debate about debate. So (laughs) A meta debate, they call it. A meta debate. Oh, okay, good. All right. There's a term for this. All right. I I know I'm in trouble already, right? Well, you can uh, imagine uh, the debate coaches debate about, you know, what the the format of the debate should be, the topics, the students debate about sometimes. Yeah, Uh, yeah. All right. So so Stefan is like the debate king, and I've challenged him to an informal and friendly debate about debate-centered instruction, or DCI as it's referred to in the paper. So you know, Stefan's been doing this since like 1984, which, by the way, is the year that I ran off and joined the circus. Uh, but that's a different story for another yeah. time. But he's been coaching and, and developing debate programs really since uh, you graduated from Wake Forest, right? About 1995? Something 95, like that? yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I'm guessing you're sitting there thinking, ah, pity the fool that challenged me to a debate. And for the young folks out there, if you don't get that, um, look Mr. up T. Mr. T. That's right. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Before we jump into the debate, I do have to ask about your career because I'm fascinated by this. I've never met anybody who made a career out of debating. So so how does this happen? Did you just like create a job that didn't exist to debate coach I mean, or something? Not, uh, yeah, I didn't really, you know, not from scratch. I mean, when I grew up, uh, you know, it's primarily teachers and, uh, you know, professors who, who were debate coaches. And, you know, a professor might get like a release period, a teacher would get paid a little bit extra. But it was actually 
uh, just before the time I, I entered Wake Forest, that a few universities started hiring full-time debate coaches. So, you know, they would have their professors, they would often have graduate students who, you know, like in every other context, uh, get stuck with a lot of the work. Uh, and then some of them like Wake Forest and Dartmouth, those are a couple jump out, hired full-time debate coaches. And it became a little more common. And then it started happening at the at the high school level as well. So I didn't really create that idea. I, you know, I was a little bit lucky in that when I came into it and wanted to be a debate coach, I knew I wanted to be a debate coach since I was in high school. There became more full-time opportunities for that. You know, I did build some businesses around it and uh, work with some nonprofits to develop some programs, which, you know, also helped me. Uh, so, you know, there was that on top of it, but it wasn't the idea of a kind of a full-time debate coach wasn't something I invented. It just, it just grew as I grew. Yeah. Cool. I, I didn't realize. I mean, I know that universities pay just outrageous money for football coaches, um, but I'm guessing. Well, we the, us debate coaches, whether high school or university, we don't, <laughs> we don't make anywhere near the, uh, the amount of money that football coaches make. But, uh, yeah, you know, in Texas, full-time, college. full-time high school football coaches, believe it or not. So, um, you know, not not as popular elsewhere. But uh, no, that we, we don't. We don't really get paid that well by the uh, by the institutions we work for. So yes, yes, uh, you know, okay. okay. All right. Well, anyway, it, you're doing yeah, something yeah. you you love and you're passionate about. Yeah, I do. I'm doing something I love. So that's yes. Bless you for that. So um, let's talk about this concept of debate centered instruction. So first, can you kind of give us a definition? What does that really mean? Well, you know, there's there's two ways that you know students participate in debate, right? Like the one is the way you may have been thinking about it, right? They, they can be in a club, then the club becomes a team because you're competing against other schools. So, you yeah. know, some people say the debate club, that's where like you argue amongst yourselves after school for fun. Debate team, you go out and compete. Then there's also the, uh, you know, and of course that includes instruction, both in how to debate, how to tackle your topics, how, how to persuade people, those type of things that's all included. Um, what we can try to unpack in the paper a little bit more using the uh, competitive debate as a model, right? It's how to use it in the classroom. Because obviously that can, that's going to affect more students, right? Only so many students are going to join the debate team from one way or another, be interested in the competitive side of it. But the idea of debate-centered instruction is that you learn through debating or you learn through the preparation of the debate before the debate, right? You have to learn right. your arguments and your, share your ideas, develop your ideas. You learn while you're debating, of course, through the process in and of itself. So the idea is to put debate at the center of instruction. Now, that doesn't mean that the only thing the teacher does, or it has to even be primarily uh, what the teacher does, but it can be a process, right? It can be a, you know, an instructional strategy, just like, you know, there are other instructional strategies uh, in the classroom. It's more uh, interactive. So some people like active learning are into it. It can be cooperative depending on how it's structured. So, you know, you have those cooperative learning theories. Obviously now people are talking a lot about performance-based assessments because writing it has its has its issues, right? Like in terms of knowing, you know, what those students wrote or didn't write and all these things. And so these performance things, and there's also other academic benefits, right? Like we talked about in the paper, actually my friend, Alan uh, Coverstone, uh, who has a, uh, you know, he has a PhD in education. He was an education department chair. He ran a charter school network. He does consulting now. Uh, really kind of unpacked, you know, the theory behind it when students are actively learning, they're engaged in that learning, they actually can learn more. Right. And that's something um, there is there's a book by Robert Lifton from the Brookings Institute 
uh, from 20, I think he, he published two versions. So sometimes I say 2018 and 2020, where he talks about debate-centered instruction. He does say there needs to be some more studies on this, you know, that it actually, uh, you know, empirically, I guess, produces the learning. There, there's some good evidence, the empirical, actually strong empirical research from the competitive side of it. People who study the competitive side of it, structure a little bit differently, that demonstrates some learning. But there's, you know, beyond the debate specifics, there's obviously a lot of research you know, that, that at least argues that when students are more engaged in the learning and they tend to remember it, right, which actually can bring up the question, right? You could say, well, what did, what did learning mean? You know, if I, I crammed before a test, you know, when I, was in, when I was in college and I had to, I was doing all my debate work all semester, right? I really like took my intro to psychology book and I read it and I highlighted it and I memorized it and I studied it and I did really well on the test. Beyond kind of the basic principles of psychology that I probably learned in high school, I couldn't tell you anything. Yep. Right. About, about psychology, at least that I learned from that class. Right. But I did well. I, I got an A. Right. But it's because I, I crammed for the test. So, you know, th that can be effective. Right. You can cram and learn and take a test. You remember that? I do tend to remember the stuff I've learned in debate. Part of it because I've been doing this so long. A lot right. of similar topics come up, climate change, those types of things. But uh, I do. Maybe I didn't learn as much or maybe I don't remember every detail of it all. But I, I think I learned more. Uh, debating. Uh, some people tell me that's because I spent all my time doing debate work. But so that's probably a variable that uh, impacted impact how much I learned from debate. Um, but I think, you know, that's something that people people started looking at even before, right? Artificial intelligence, right? There's well, this move in well, general to yeah. talk about learning there, because for me and, and your paper does get into this a little bit right on durable skills. Right. right. So uh, to me, it's not about you know, knowledge acquisition, memorizing something, learning some data point, because honestly, in, in today's world, those skills are completely obsolete, right? If I hire somebody in, in the real world, I hire an engineer, I could care less whether they remember, you know, what was in their psychology course. Right. I care about, you know, what they can do. Um, and if they need to look something up, look it up. Right. Your speed exactly. and your ability to look something up is much more important to me than your ability to remember some random fact. Right. So um, so, yes, that ability to cram and regurgitate on an exam. And and I, I, I could tell you, I did lots of that. I was good at that. I was a good student because I could do that. And I know a lot of students who couldn't and they hated me because <laughs> I could come in at the last minute and uh, and study and then you know ace a test anyway. That's uh that's a whole other issue. What I want to dig into though is what I immediately perceive as a um a, a problem with debate um, as an activity for most students, right? It's it's like, and I and I don't mind school to sound so clicky, but you know, I was growing up, right? There were the the athletes, the jocks as right. they called them, right? And then there were the nerdy kids. I fell somewhere in between. I was both in theater and band, you know, and I also played some sports, but I was probably more on the nerdy side. And so debate would have been fine for me. But for a lot of kids, this is like, like, would be torture, asking me to stand in front of a class and make some verbal, you know, argument about something. So how do you get past that, that problem of that, probably a significant portion of the student population now, and I live in Asia. I mean, here, kids are really passive, don't want to speak up. You know, this would be would be horrifying for for many kids if you were, if you told them you've got to get up in front of a class 
and uh, and present an argument or something. So how do you get past that problem? Well, you know, you, I mean, you bring up two issues, right? You bring you bring up the nerdy issue, right? Which is <laughs> kind of embedded, right? It's especially I think it's a little embedded even more than in American culture than uh, you know uh, Asian culture. In my experience, you know, I built some uh, uh, debate programs, you know, in China, and one of the chaperones which told me she said, well. We don't really have as much of the like jock uh, nerd divide. All, you know, the kids <laughs> want to do well in school. So, but, you know, there's that. So I don't know that everyone's going to go out and join the debate team. There are different things you can do uh, to build interest there. But, you know, you also bring up the classroom, right? Like, how is it going to, won't these kids be, you know, so afraid to get up and speak, right? Um, I agree. Uh, many of them will be, right? And that, that well, to me, first of all, that kind of reinforces the point, right? Because, you know, as you just previously mentioned, Right. These are these are the skills. And, you know, there are these debates about content. Right. And obviously, I think kids need to learn some content. And in the course of learning content, you learn to learn. Right. So I think that's valuable, even if you, if you don't remember everything. But if the students are going to have durable skills, they're skills. You develop skills through practice. Right. Yeah. Just like soccer. you can't you can't just tell a student how to play soccer and then have them go play soccer. They have they have to practice practice playing soccer or, you know, they have to practice their part in the play. Right. Whatever it is. So it's the same. It applies to debate. The only way you're going to be eventually become a better speaker, learn how to think through an idea and make an argument is to actually do it. Yes. Yeah? So it invites fear. But if the response is like, well, these students are afraid, so we're not going to do it, then it's never going to happen. And they're never going to develop the skills. Right. That you just you said were essential. Right. I think we're, we're in complete agreement there. Now, how do you do that? Right. So that's a question of like, well, how do you take that? kid, you know, and and get them to do it. Well, you know, there's a way you can start. And we didn't unpack, we packed a little bit in the paper um, and we're develop, developing some additional materials, but you have to make the, you have to start with a small debate, right? So you're starting with kids giving like a one minute speech or a 30 second speech, and they don't have to do that in front of the whole room, right? Can I so just maybe, text you my argument, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 there's that, there's text. <laughs> But no, you can break the room into sections and the kids can present arguments with each other or they present it in a group of four. You know, if you're at a debate tournament, unless you really reach the finals, you make it into the eliminations, you're not presenting in front of like 100 people. What happens at a debate tournament is, you know, generally debates two on two. It can be three on three or one on one. But whatever format you're using, say you and I were debate partners, we'd go to room like 216, we debate two other kids and there would be a judge. Right. right. So I'm just I'm just debating those two other kids. You know, I'm getting some feedback from a judge. You tell a judge when the students are new to be very supportive and encouraging that your only goal is to get them to come back and debate again. Right. Because it's a learning yeah. process. So that's one of the first thing I you know, you have to keep the debate short. You have to keep the speeches short. You have to kind of give them isolated uh, activities, you know, in a classroom, like in a small area. I would never have a student on their first thing come up and speak in front of the class. Right. That would like probably melt them down. And I, I think you have to understand that it is a skill. And like, as you pointed out, a lot of kids have never done it, right? Or even anything similar. And I tell you, a lot of a lot of uh, faculty have, haven't done it. I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. But I think you need to, you know, keep that in mind. You have to calibrate your expectations. You know, I'm in a group called the uh, High, higher ed professors of writing. I'm not. I'm not a higher ed professor of writing, but since I got <laughs> involved, in the group. it's all about AI. It's all. It's all. It's a group that was started by a professor like last January that now it's like five thousand members, and they wow. talk about AI and writing, which I'm very interested in. But that's how I ended up in there. And I was talking about debate, and one of the professors said, "Oh, well, do you, can you send me, you know, how you do it?" Because she said I tried to have a debate in class, but you know, the kids were just reading thing, the things. The debate wasn't very good. 
And I was thinking, what well, was their very first time? So yes, like, of course it wasn't very good, right? If you go to a competitive debate tournament where the kids have probably even had more practice before they get there, I mean, no offense to the kids, the debates are pretty bad, right? But that's not the point, right? It's like when you go watch little kids play soccer, they're pretty bad. Like they don't even have offsides rules. They're just kicking the ball. They kick it out of bounds. They kick it into the wrong goal, right? So the same thing's going to happen um, inside those debates. But I also think the teachers need some training. I you know, started this debate program in Japan and we had the finals at a, at a university. And the professors, the university was great. They were very supportive. They had the professors, you know, be the judges. And they said, well, you got to come in and you got to judge at this debate tournament. Whether they liked it or not, they were there. And, you know, after did the training, the one professor said, well, what if, what if a student gets up there and they're really nervous and they can't, they can't really give their speech? And I said, well, you're a professor. I said, you've probably had similar things happen in a classroom where, you know, maybe yeah. a student got really nervous or, you know, they felt yeah. insecure, whether it was a debate, a speech or anything in the classroom, right? Maybe it was a good project or, yeah. I said, you just have to encourage them, right? You have to encourage them to go on. Obviously, if you think they can't go on, then, you know, find a way to kind of end it and sit down, right? So, but, you know, it occurred to me that as much classroom experience as that professor probably had, uh, he looked a little bit older, so he's probably teaching me 20, 30 years. It just, you know, well, oh my gosh, well, if I have a debate, and yeah. a kid, and, and a kid like can't really do it. What, what what's going to happen? It's like, well, use use your human skills, right? Um, just use your durable way. skills, right? Yes. Use your durable <laughs> skills to kind of manage the situation, help the student through it. I explained that all the kids had debated before, so you yeah. know, it wasn't their first time, so we probably wouldn't have those situations. But you do have to build it up. You have to gradually build it in because you're right. A lot of students don't have any experience. I mean, I went, remember the first time I went to China. We started the debate program, you know, and the classes, we'd go to these really, some of the best public schools in China where we started this program. You know, classes would have like 50 students. So, of course, there wasn't a lot of like, you know, that dynamic, uh, project-based, whatever you want to call it, authentic learning yeah. going on. You have one teacher, 50 kids, so it was, it was mostly lecture, right? And, yeah. and, and kind of regurgitation. So, you know, those students didn't have a lot of experience, but they really shined. You know, they really they really caught on, especially the girls. The girls are... The girls are the girls are a little stronger, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was it was great, and and they did well, and they they've come out. You know, the one I haven't uh, kept track of her recently. So this was ten years ago when we started. And I remember one of the original because my I recruited a friend of mine who's in Nanjing Foreign Language School, so he was there. Then she was one of her, uh, his stronger debaters, Rosalind, and then she went to the Harvard Debate Camp, which I was uh, running with someone at the time. And then, but anyhow, she went through. She went to. I forget where she went to college in the U.S., somewhere in Boston, maybe Wellesley. And then she went to Harvard Law School. Wow. And, you know, her she wasn't an international student. Her dad was a, a botanist, a Chinese botanist. And her mother was Chinese. She grew up in China. Yeah. She went to public school. right? Because, you know, it's a lot of times you see one thing. I love there's a lot of international schools and, you know, they're, they're basically yeah. American, American Chinese. Right. So. Right. But no, she wasn't. She she. I am she curious. English, yeah. you know, these I, debate I, programs done in English. Yeah, so all the debate programs are done in English because the the cohort of students were generally students who wanted to go to school either in the United States or the UK for the most part. So, and they were going through. I was working with a company. Uh, it's still there. I still I still do work with them, and they had programs uh, in the schools to prepare students to uh, take either the, they would either go through the IB program or the, I forget what the UK one is called. Um, they would kind of basically choose one of those programs and they would go through that. And of course they still have some classes in there, 
in their regular school, but they were Chinese students in Chinese public schools who were kind of doing this program on on top of it. So we had everything in English. Now, yeah. the very first year, the government wanted us to have something in Chinese. So at the national tournament, uh, which is at RDFZ in Beijing, which I guess people tell me is the number one high school in China, there's probably some debate about that. But uh, the government really wanted us to have um, debates uh, in Chinese. So, you know, there was this whole other Chinese division debate that was going on that I wasn't really paying much attention to. But then they asked me, you know, so at the end, so we had the English finals, which I judge. And then, you know, it was the Chinese finals were up. So a couple of my friends are there from America. So I just figured, well, we're going to head out and, you know, go walk yep. around and come back. They said, oh, no, we need you to judge. It's judge. We don't have a speak Chinese. And they <laughs> said, just sit there. They want you to they want you to just sit there. And I tell you what, we didn't understand a word they were saying. And this goes to the durable skills point. Yep. Both of us <laughs> guessed who, who we thought won the debate. And in right. fact, the, they were the team that won the debate. We didn't understand any of their arguments. Now, look, Just body I mean, language team, and yeah, right, body yeah. language, speaking. Now, look, you know, I, the other team was strong too, right? So I'm sure there there are a bunch of good arguments kind of floating around. But you know, that factor, you know, really, really, really played out. And you know, for a while, like I said, I've, I've kind of lost track of some of them. Last I saw, you know, Rosalind went went to Harvard Law School, but there were a couple. One became like a fashion designer, and you know, they're all kids. So part of you're taking in, you know, obviously the kids who excel in competitive sense, they have some talent for that. It's just like a, it's like a sport, right? Like, you know, I mean, yeah. if you're coordinated and, and you have muscles and, you know, all those kind of things, right. You kind of excel at sports. These kids had some persuasion skills. They're a little more personal, but the point is you could take any kids in the classroom. Like I remember my, I went to my friend, Tom, uh, he was at the big class and there were like 80 kids in it because we didn't really have enough coaches. Right. And he's teaching all these kids. And, you know, I, 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 I like I said, I remember a few, but, uh, you know, all those kids were learning. Right. Like they're trying to write their speeches. They wrote a speech. They gave a speech. They did a little bit of debating. Um, you know, it wasn't anywhere near what some of these other kids accomplished. But every kid learns. Right. So that's the one thing in the classroom. Of course, you can have every kid debate at a debate tournament. Every kid debates. And they'll all debate at least a certain number of debates. Now, it's like the, you know, if you're familiar with the NCAA basketball tournament, right? Eventually, you move to a bracket of, you yeah. know, they have 64, right? And then you go down and the debate March Madness. Yeah, yes. March Madness. It's usually like, you know, so that everybody will have like between four and six debates. And then you'll take, you know, it's usually like the top 32 or the top 16. Uh, and then they'll go down that single elimination and have a champion. And there's another, uh, there are some other speech events. I don't have as much background in that, but the one we had in China was original oratory and the kids who struggled with speaking English, especially, or they had less time, they would do original oratory, which is really just a problem solution speech that they have to write and memorize. So, you know, even though they were just giving a speech, they weren't really doing the debating part um, that gave them opportunities. And especially younger kids would do that. And even in China now, they have a little, uh, they have elementary school kids like giving speeches. It's kind of cute. But that helps get that out. And that you know, when you the younger you are, the less afraid you are, for better or worse. Right. Yeah. Right? No, I think that would be one of the keys is starting them young, right? If they've been doing this all along through their right. programs, uh, their education part of the curriculum, say part of the pedagogy, much much easier. You try to introduce this in you know high school or college, um, it would be a, a bit harder, but. Yes, the earlier they yeah, start. Yeah, it is. The, you know, you know, so it's too in high school too. Kids start to, 
you know, you, your kids kind of go into more into sports. They've got their group of friends. Because that's the one thing you'll see in high school. If somebody comes in, then it's kind of their friends that come, right? So yep, yep. kids kind of, so, you know, originally debate was in high school and college. It wasn't until about around 2000, the latest, probably closer to like 2005-ish, you started having more middle school debate. And okay. middle school, in the U.S. anyhow, and the middle school debate's really grown in the U.S., it grew in Asia a lot because, you know, one thing, at least in China, you know, the kids are so uh, they're you know, they get really overloaded academically. Right. So in America, it's like, well, do you play sports or are you a nerd? <laughs> right. And at least in China, it's, and, you know, we, I saw some of this in Korea, too. It's like, well, right, you're already taking like when school's over, you go to school. Right. Especially in Korea, they have the Hagwons. Right. You have that in China. And then for a long time in China, had all the online classes, which you cut down on a little bit, but kids, kids were just really booked academically. Right. So in China, it wasn't like, well, are you going to be an athlete or a debater? It's like, we're going to be a debater. You're going to take like nine other courses when, when the when the school day is over, but anyhow, that pushed that. It's either piano or violin. Right. Right. Usually. Yes. They, they play a musical instrument and yes, they have. uh, Yeah. So, you know, they have a lot going on, um, you know, academically. So, you know, there it seemed like kind of the relative, you know, the parents say, well, how, you know, how strong is this compared to, you know, some something else, yeah. right, that you could be doing? Where in the right. U.S., I feel like, you know, if you're on the debate team, your parents are pretty excited that you're doing something productive, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I get that. All right. Yeah. I want to dig in a little bit. So the paper makes this case, if you will, that yeah. in the AI world, this is even more important. So. So, so help me tie that together. Why is debate skills, debate programs, debate-centered instruction more important when there's AI in the context than previous? Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons. The one is that, you know, people generally make this argument that we need to shift to more performative uh, type assessments because obviously, especially... You know, and this is probably even more true in the university level, right? Like university level, professors rely on papers or exams, right? So unless we're going to go back uh, and do more exams, right, then what are we going to do outside of that? And one thing I've learned, and when I talk to take K-12 audiences, I always emphasize this. It's like you you guys are way ahead of the university people because you've thought about more. In the K-12 world, they've thought more about like instruction and learning. They have experience with these performative, you know, assessments with project-based learning, Right. Those types of things. So, you know, in the college, it's going to be a little bit more of a change because they're more reliant on the paper. But that makes it even more important. Right. We, we could we could talk more about the whole paper thing. I have a lot of thoughts on that. But I think the the point, the, the general point there. Right. Is that we need assessments. Right. That are that are not come the end of the semester, come back with a 30 page paper, because like in reality, we're not going to wrote it. The second thing is, you know, what would you brought up earlier? Right. Like. There, I want to make sure that that point came out, yeah. right? You said, right, when they write the paper, we're not going to know who wrote it, right, when they bring the, the yeah. paper in. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a broad statement, right? And, you know, there's all kind of different things people develop. Yes. Well, yeah, I'll make you turn in your paper like every day and you can show me the progress, those types of things, right? But, yeah. you know, most people don't have a lot of time. But I know when I did it, and this got me through many classes, it was generally like turning the paper at the end of the semester. Maybe there was like a one-time, like, give me your outline or, yeah. you know, something like that. It was basically just give me the paper. Right. And yeah, I mean, a lot, you know, and I, I can rattle off like a whole bunch of reasons, right? Like, well, that's a teacher you know, workload issue probably more than anything else. 
What yeah, you yeah, think? you know, and especially yeah. some people said, like, you know, somebody had a whole list of things, you know, professors could do to have all these different checks along the way of kids writing the paper. And someone said, well, you know, I do have TAs, but I teach a lecture class of 400 students. So yeah. it's not really possible for even with the TAs to, you know, have these check-ins, right? Yeah. So, you know, and that can make debate a little complicated. But the, the point there is, like, people are really thinking the paper is more difficult. You've seen, of course, online and things that some professors have, you know, thought through this a lot and they have their own, you know, maybe it's not debate. They've come up with, it doesn't have to be right. Debate. I'm saying suggesting debate is one option, right? Different ways that you can assess the performance in the classroom. And the second thing is, you know, to go back to what you, you said at the very beginning, right there, there is a shift more towards skills, right. And developing skills because, you know, some people call them soft skills, right? Some people call them durable skills. Durable skills sound stronger. Soft sounds like <laughs> yeah. it's the same set of skills, right? But I like soft the term like, durable, yes. Yeah, yeah, soft just sounds like, yeah, it's just kind of soft. Like, do we really need it? Not that important. Hard skills like science or it or something like that, right? So you see this shift uh, towards skills, which are communication, persuasion, critical thinking, collaboration. You know, if it's a leadership, if you're on the team, it gives you some leadership. There was just a yep. survey uh, put out by the, uh, it was a brief article on LinkedIn by the CEO of LinkedIn. And, you know, of course they have all the data, right? So right, a, right. a lot of times you can speculate, academics can speculate or do a survey of, you know, a certain set of people, but they have all the data from all of LinkedIn. And they said the number one uh, demand for employers is these soft skills, right? right? And I'm using soft there because that's what they use. The well, second is the... generative AI. And the yeah. third is like, you know, content. Yeah. Did you see the um, World Economic Forums. Yeah. So, you know, report. they've been making yeah. that argument. And, you know, you can find, you know, you have the World Health Organization's made that argument. People yeah. have also been making that argument before AI that we need to learn more, that students need more skills. And AI now, obviously, people say, well, the knowledge, right? This is, a, you know, they call it the knowledge worker, right? Like what's going to happen to the knowledge worker? And, you know, you have people like Yan LeCun, who I've been following more. He's the chief scientist at Meta, professor at NYU, is really one of the people behind these this type of, you know, AI, the, the neural network-based AI, right? And he's like, oh, you know, I listened to a podcast with him. He says, you know, in the future, we're all just going to have five, like, AIs that are smarter than us working for us, right? So it, and then when that happens, then kind of everyone is, you know, they call, they call this a creator economy, right? And that has this cool little vibe to it, right? But the basic idea, everyone's kind of building their own business, starting their own thing, accomplishing everything and then how how am i what am i adding to that right like how am i enhanced by ai because i'm communicating with you right because i go to you and say eric you know what like my business does this and your business does this like let's let's get our ais to set up some appointments right and let's talk and you know combine what we're doing and let's interact that becomes the dividing point not not who can like maybe who's better at like math unless you're just like in the stratosphere right because the ais are going to be able to do everything (laughs) You know, sure, we're still going to need the, the Yan Lacoons and, you know, the Jeffrey Hintons to to do like the stratospheric math. Right. To, but yeah. most people, that's not what they're going to be doing. Right? Engineering is going to change. Right. It's going to be creative. Right. When you see all these cool ads that are being generated by AI. Right. And they, it's really the creativity. There's a Pepsi ad that uses some kind of regular people. And then it also uses some AI and some other types of technologies I'm not familiar with. And they produce this really cool ad. But that took creativity. And of course, it required some basic use of the technology. And like I said, people do need to learn to learn. That's one thing I've spent so much time in debate, right? Generative AI, I mean, sure, it existed before November 2022, but no, 
hardly anybody used it, right? Like if you go look at the old mid-journey images, I mean, they were terrible, right? Search those. Before oh, yeah. that, computer, people on computers were using it. it. It was starting to write code. And it's really the consumer, and it kind of became popularized with the release of ChatGPT, right? And everybody's kind of using it now. Well, at least not maybe not everybody, but a lot of people, right, are using it. And that's really going to change, you know, how we live, how we learn, how we work. It's going to change the world. And, you know, a lot of these people at the top are, you know, really kind of saying the same things. And these are the skills that we're going to need to develop. You've got to love this. A debate about debate as an active learning tool. Stefan is truly an expert, and the conversation has been fascinating and informative for me, and hopefully for you. We continue the discussion in part two as Stefan gets a lot more into a discussion of AI and why debate skills are that much more important as AI use inevitably increases in schools. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and share. We have more awesome guests with amazing stories of innovation and education that you don't want to miss. Please reach out if you have comments or suggestions, or you just want to have a debate with me. I'm Eric Byron. Thanks for listening, and thanks to all those education innovators out there. You are making a difference.